listening to sermon audio from First Baptist Church of Van Holstein. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Last time I was at church, I preached, which is really odd for me to uh, attend twice and preach twice. But uh, so in the in between, we, uh, my wife and I, went to a coach's marriage retreat and uh, had a great time worshiping and be connecting uh, with some believers and being encouraged. Um, I got asked a lot of times, or every day, or every conversation. So, what do you coach? I'm like. She's the coach. Uh, But uh, it's a ministry that pours into coaches knowing that the time commitments, uh, especially in the fall with football and other sports, uh, that uh, the the havoc, it can wreck on a marriage. So this ministry uh, ministers to coaches uh, to strengthen their marriages and their walk with Christ so that they can be the impact that many a coach has been in our lives like the ones who, Coach Dale, who impacted my life. And so uh, it's a great time to worship with guys who are, are like the guys who impacted my life and, uh, and the ladies. Uh, and so that was a couple of weeks ago, and then we were on vacation last week. And so uh, we float the river in New Braunfels and uh, do all that good stuff at Texas, Texas Traditions and the cold water. So we're back home and... Uh, and so I'm struggling a little bit this morning uh, after a week of vacation and then jumping right into preaching. Uh, I put my shaving cream as my shampoo this morning. I've never in my life done that. And so uh, I hope this turns out okay because of uh, uh, it did not start that great this morning. And so, uh, but I wanted to share with you, uh, many of you know that one of my passions and my hobbies, uh, or my hobby, is photography. And so uh, this will get to the, the sermon in just a second. It really will. So uh, a couple of years, I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance in two, 2020 for an unexpected trip uh, to go to London to be with my mom uh, during a time of grief in her life. And, uh, and, but also I spent almost a month there, over three weeks, and, uh, to, to be there. And um, in that, there were some times where I found opportunities to get away and to uh, experience a little bit of London, uh, never been there. And so, uh, so I, I like photography, and uh, I can get up early in the morning if I got my camera to go get a sun, sunrise or something like that. So I hit the first train uh, down to London, and I found myself uh, uh, up at about 4.30 in the morning, uh, six, uh, hitting the first train, first stations, couple train stations, and finding myself in front of St. Paul's Cathedral early in the morning uh, before a lot of people were up except for those driving the buses. And so I, I took a couple pictures I wanted to share with you here this morning. Uh, yeah. So those are some of my London captures. So I, uh, I just love uh, some of my favorite work uh, just, just uh, that morning. So that's the way it started out, and I had no plans for that day, okay, other than these first two stops to do there. And I can spend hours uh, taking pictures, and I did, uh, the different scenes. And then I found myself, the next stop I wanted to go to was a place called St. Dunstan's in the East, and it was a uh, medieval church that was bombed during uh, the Nazi bombing of London. And so, whereas a lot of things were rebuilt uh, after that, this church was left uh, in, its, in its state of disrepair and uh, is a part to remember 
the damage that was done during the, the bombings in London. And so what you find is uh, the open door and park benches to reflect. Uh, I was there in January. The, uh, in the summer, it's just, there's just vines everywhere. That's where you get the green tint. Uh, just one of the most beautiful uh, and tragic places I've ever been. So that was my next stop. I had no plan after that. It was, it was, uh, it was Saturday morning. One of the things I wasn't going to do because I, I hadn't, but I was nearby, and I thought, well, I'll walk over to the Tower of London and take some pictures. I really like that bridge that's over there. And so I'm over there, and it's about opening time for the Tower of London, and I had no plan to go there, none whatsoever. It's touristy, I thought, uh, just too crowded on a Saturday. There's no way I'm going to do that on a Saturday. Uh, but I looked, there wasn't very many people, and I thought, okay, I'm going to actually spend the $40 to get in, which was also a painful thing for me. And so, uh, and so because this is the only place you can see the crown jewels, and if you're a fan of the crown on Netflix, which I am, uh, I was like, I have to go see it. So that was my whole intention, okay? Uh, I, didn't, I was blown away with how my faith was challenged and spoken to that day. Because pretty, pretty quickly while I was in there, I went on a tour uh, with the beef eaters, and, uh, and they described a situation where we stood in a place that a lady was beheaded. And I'm going to tell you about her in just a second. And uh, we stood in her place, and they told us their story about her faith and why she was there and why she lost her life. And then later, as you, that's the Tower of London, but really it's inside a big walled kind of castle type of thing. And so as you go through the walls of the castle, there's different rooms and all different things. And in one, you go from like these torture chambers where they show you how they would torture people to get them to recant and change their minds about things. And then, then you go into this area that was uh, where some of the prisoners were kept. And on the walls were what we do, where we scratch and we leave our imprint that we were there. And so what you find is uh, these walls have been preserved, and the next picture shows um, the etchings of some things like the cross, right? And then uh, there's some hand, there's some Latin words and, and names, and the one that I have a picture of there is written in 1553, okay? And so it's just a little bit before the era that I'm, talking about, I'm gonna talk about in just a second. But to stand there and to see the cross, to see the etchings of prisoners that lost their life, And the benefit is I stand here today to proclaim the word of God because of their life. Now, I almost missed it because it was a touristy to me. But in that situation, we know about Martin Luther and posting on the doors of Wittenberg in 1517 that started what we call the Protestant Reformation. Probably should be called the Protestant Revolution uh, the wars that were started uh, with the battles between church and state and the separation of those things that, that this really included. Uh, but you jump forward uh, into England's Reformation, and, and one of the pinnacles of it is in 1547, and that's when a new king, Edward VI, comes to power. He's 15 years old, and he is a Protestant. And it opens up an era of open 
Protestant and uh, uh, churches and growth and, and preaching and the pulling away of the, by that time the English had pulled away from the Roman Catholic Church. And so what you have is this openness and, and, and uh, transference of the gospel and believers uh, seeing and reading scripture for themselves and the translations that were happening to put the language in the common people's English and the people had lost their lives for that. And then you have this king who at 15, he, he dies six years later. Or he dies at 15, actually. So uh, in 1553. And so the same time that Harry Clark wrote his name there. And so uh, who comes into power, because he's 15, he doesn't have any heirs, is, um, is a relative named Lady Jane Grey. And so she is the queen for nine days until uh, the half, uh, half-sister of Edward, Mary, claims power in a coup, and she is taken to the Tower of London, and she's beheaded. Nine days. So uh, now you might have heard of Mary, or you at least know her nickname, Bloody Mary. And because what she uh, starts is a persecution of the Protestant believers in England. This six-year period is over. And so what you have is up to almost 300 individuals are arrested. Some of them taken here, uh, arrested here. But the majority of them are burned at the stake in public places, especially, and then taken back to the towns that they preached in and burned at the stake in the town, in their own towns, uh, as a public uh, in, uh, attack on the Protestant faith. And so, what you have uh, is, I want to read you something because why were they killed? What was the reason Bloody Mary attacked the Protestant believers? And what, what, were the, what was the attack? And so J.C. Ryle, in 1890, uh, he writes this, okay? The doctrine in question was the real presence of the blood, body and blood of Christ in the consecrated elements of bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. The issue of why they died is this right here. That the last time we took, it, we, we used these little COVID individual tear-off versions of the Lord's Supper. They died over the Lord's Supper. And today in 1 Corinthians, our section of Scripture speaks to uh, Paul's writing to the Corinth church about the Lord's Supper. And so today we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper but yet not participate in it. That's something that's very odd for us Baptists and for us to do. But, uh, so, but in this, there's so much to be taken from it and, uh, and to be challenged in our faith daily. And so read on. He says this, Did they or did they not believe that the body and blood of Christ were really, that is, corporately, literally, locally, materially, present under the forms of bread and wine after the words of consecration were pronounced? Did they or did they not believe the real body of Christ, which was born of the Virgin Mary, was present in the 1500s 
on the altar, after the so-called altar, so soon as the mystical words had passed the lips of the priests, did they or did they not? That is the simple question. If they did not believe and admit it, they lost their life. They were burned. Whether they believed that when the priests consecrated at the altar the bread and the wine, did it literally, materially, physically turn into the body of Christ? Because that is what, when Jesus said, this is my body while holding a loaf of bread to his disciples to teach them about an ordinance, something that we believe is an ordinance that we should do in remembrance of what was about to happen the next day and that weekend, that this is my body. It's an illustration, this bread. I'm the bread of life. This body, this bread, when you eat this bread, as you gather in a church service in the year 2020, then you are remembering the sacrifice I did on the cross. This is my body. But for a Catholic, the Roman Catholic faith, and at this time especially, this is a, this is a source of controversy. Okay, The Roman Catholics interpreted this is my body in a literal fashion, arguing that the bread and wine actually change physically after the priest blesses it. On the table, the altar, and it becomes the body and blood of Christ. This is called transubstantiation. If you go to a Catholic church, what you'll find is an alt- a table, altar in the center, like right where I'm standing. What you will find somewhere in the building off to the side, maybe elevated just a little bit, whoop, I really did about fall, is, is a pulpit. And so what you find in the placement of items in, this, in, this, in their sanctuary, it shows what, what is vital of importance. Why do, why do I stand here? Why does Pastor Mike stand here in the center of the room behind a music stand or a pulpit? It's because the proclamation of the word of God is vital to us. In a Catholic church, the altar is in the center because that is the essential elements of the faith. It is the Eucharist, the mass. It is, it is, where, uh, it is where the sacrament, notice we don't use sacraments. We use the word ordinance. We'll talk about that in a second. Sacrament dispenses grace. Because it is the means of God's grace, because the church is the dispenser of grace. God, Roman Catholic Church, grace, people. Okay? It does this through the Eucharist and the Mass. It is the central theme of the Catholic Church when connected to the church and state, like it was in medieval times, then the powerful rulers also controlled salvation. Why did they fight and kill over the Lord's Supper and what the belief was about it? It's because it tore down their power. It tore it down. Because if you believed, if you didn't believe in the sacrament that, that physically turned into the blood of Jesus Christ, then you didn't need to take that to get grace. You didn't need the church to give it to you. The Bible says there's one intermediary between God and man. That's Christ Jesus Somebody actually read that, and it changed everything. 
And so ordinance is what Jesus did. And what we, we say there's two ordinances of the church. That is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And these are symbolic acts of worship. They are demonstrations of our faith. They are not dispensers of our faith. They are done to remember. They are ordained or ordered by Jesus uh, in his life. The Baptist faith and message, which is our, our essentials of our faith, says this about the Lord's Supper in a very brief understanding that's connected to scriptures. You can, that you can search Baptist faith and message. You can find this. You can find all the scriptures that this is gleaned from. But it says this, the Lord's Supper is a symbolic act of obedience whereby members of the church, through partaking of the bread and the fruit of the vine, fruit of the vine, memorialize the death of the Redeemer, and anticipate his second coming. That's what we believe. It's ordained, ordered by Jesus to remember. It is a symbol of our faith. It is done as an act of worship. One of the people that stood up against Bloody Mary was a man named Roland Taylor. And he was arrested. He was taken to Tower London he was grilled. He was probably tortured to recant. And, uh, and then he was later taken back to his town and where he was burned at the stake. But he writes this as to say why he would put to, be put to death. Why, what, why am I condemned as a heretic was that I denied transubstantiation, whereby the papists believe that Christ's natural body is made of bread and that the Godhead by and by to be joined thereto, so that immediately after the words of consecration, there is no more bread and wine in the sacrament, but the substance only of the body and blood of Christ. And he says this, because I denied that, the aforesaid papal doctrine, yea, rather plain, wicked idolatry, blasphemy, and heresy. That's what that is. I am judged a heretic. And he lost his life for it. To know that Jesus said this was important, and it would be one of the things that we would do together as a body uh, of believers throughout the world from that moment in time forward places enough importance on the Lord's Supper, knowing that there were men and women who died, who died, a pastor who died standing for his beliefs that he founded Scripture. Oh, it changes how I look at that cup. Oh, it changes it. The text we have today in our study of 1 Corinthians deals with the issue of time that they were having surrounding the Lord's Supper and Paul's response and teaching for all time concerning this ordinance to the church. So we're going to look at that, what they were dealing with then. Uh, he describes it, and then, but we're going to pay more attention to the teaching he gives that lasts beyond that, that situation. And so uh, we find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses, verse 17, starting there. And it says this, But in the following instructions, I do not command you. If you look at the start of the chapter, he is going to get on to him, but he, he kind of does uh, 
uh, the sandwich method in some ways. Uh, you ever heard of the sandwich method when you're confronting somebody? So you have bread, the meat, and the bread. So you say something nice. You say the issue. You close with something nice. Anyway, so uh, just to let you know. So if I ever do that to you, that's the sandwich method. And so, um, but he starts with something nice up there. He says, I commend you for this. And then I'm going to correct you on some things. But on this, he's like, this is the meat. I am not going to commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. When their church got together, it wasn't for the better. Wow, that's pretty bold. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. The whole point of 1 Corinthians is, is, is attacking disunity and building unity. So he's saying there's divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must, this is a good thing he says here, for, when there's divisions, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So he's saying one good thing is, is when you have people that are right and wrong, it shines a light on those who are right. Truth versus fiction. Okay? But it's still a pretty disastrous thing in the church here whenever, when there's this much division, he says. When you come together, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. For eating, each one of you goes ahead with its own meal one goes hungry and one gets drunk. It's pretty extreme. What you probably had, and you see in Acts, is the believers gathered together at times and had feasts. And even Jesus said, uh, when, it, when he gives the Lord's Supper, he says, after supper, right? So they ate, and then he did the Lord's Supper. And so the, a, lot of, a lot of churches followed that model. They come together, they had a potluck, just like the ladies are going to do tonight. It's very scriptural, Okay, and so uh, it's very Baptistic. See there, so they come together and they ate, but there was a problem with that, and uh, because uh, before they ate the Lord's Supper, basically those who came hungry who didn't have enough to bring left hungry. Those who were rich and came and had a lot of food to bring, they left drunk. Okay, so there's divisions, and one of the divisions was being rich and poor. And since for eating, each of you goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in if you're that hungry? I mean, come on. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. And so what we see is this issue that pertains to them. And what the bigger issue is that, uh, that the unity comes up in the Corinthians church, letting worldly categories again separate believers into opposite groups. The church, its community, its gatherings, and its ordinances should be demonstrations of breaking down the walls that the world uses to separate us. Let me say that again. The church, its community, its community groups, its gatherings, its worship, and the ordinances Baptism and the Lord's Supper should be demonstrations of breaking down walls, of coming together, that the world, uh, breaking down the groups that the world separates, and to be a display of unity for those that follow Christ. The teaching he gives us in response to this issue is what we're going to focus on here. We want to see that the ordinance is not a dispenser of grace, but it displays grace that's been given to us freely in Christ Jesus. We want to see the grace that's been given, the grace we have access to, and a future grace that we'll one day experience in heaven. And so look with me in his response in verse 23. It says this, For I received from the Lord what I delivered to you. It's a pretty good way to start. 
What I'm about to tell you again and what I've taught you before came from the man himself, okay? That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, saying, quote, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup for the new covenant is in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats this bread, drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we... But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. And so what I wanted to see is three things here this morning from this section of Scripture about uh, the grace that the Lord's Supper projects and teaches us uh, and is for us today. The first thing is the Lord's Supper is to project or show us grace from the past that God sent his son, Jesus, and what he did for us. And uh, when our call to worship uh, is from, uh, that we read today, is from this section of scripture I'm about to read, and it's in Acts. Um, and, so, um, and, and so Paul, the same guy who's writing to the church in Corinth, is on a missionary trip, and they're traveling, and he's uh, they're in the synagogue on a Saturday, and, and uh, they're gathering. And after the time of worship, they're outside, and, and somebody, the leader there says, Hey, if one of you brothers have a good word, you can share it. And so he says, Thanks for the opportunity. I think I will. And so he shares this, and he says, Brothers, you sons of Abraham, and also you God-fearing Gentiles, Jews and Gentiles that were gathered there, The message of salvation has been sent to us. The people in Jerusalem and their leaders did not recognize Jesus as one of the prophets had spoken about. Instead, they condemned him, and doing this, they fulfilled the prophet's words that are read every Sabbath right here. They didn't see Jesus. They condemned Jesus. They read the the scriptures. They didn't realize they fulfilled the scriptures. Uh, They found no legal reason to execute him, but they asked Pilate to have him killed anyway. And when they had done all that the prophecies said about him, they took him down from the cross and placed him in the tomb. But God raised him from the dead. That's what we sang about this morning. And over a period of many days, he appeared to those who had gone with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. They are now his witnesses to the people of Israel. By the way, that means they're still alive. You can ask them. That's, that's, that's what he's saying at the time. Dif- dispute me if you want, but here's people walking around tell, still telling this story. And now we are here to bring this good news. The promise was made to our ancestors, and God has now fulfilled it for us, their descendants, by raising 
Jesus. The Lord's Supper connects us to this good news. The good news that Paul summarized in one little paragraph right there, encapsulated everything to the group. And he says, this good news, which was the suffering that Jesus Christ went through for us through the Lord's Supper, it it reminds us through physical taste, sight, and smell, and touch through the bread and the fruit of the vine. It connects those two things. And so it projects the grace from the past. And so... Uh, but why these two elements, right? Now, obviously, Jesus was at a supper and probably had both the elements there, right? So that's one reason it's there. Uh, and so in a lot of ways, I, I know we, we float the river each day, and uh, we get off the river, and we do late lunches. And we, we, this week, we went to this seafood restaurant, and they, they do bread. We were like, do they do bread? I think they do bread. I, I want bread. And so, uh, and so the lady's like... Uh, would y'all like some bread delivered to your table? And like four out of six of us sitting there said, yes. Yeah, and she's like, okay. I will. And then she came back with like this whole tray of bread. She goes, I think y'all wanted some bread. And so, and we take that bread and it's a really nice restaurant, you know, and it's black tablecloths and everything. And we just ripped that bread apart, you know, uh, at least I did. And so just tearing into it, it's kind of sliced. No need for knives. It's my loaf anyway. Just tear it apart and, so, uh, and just grab it. And so that's, that's always been the picture, right, of the Lord's Supper, of Jesus saying, this is my body, this is the bread, and this hard outside exterior, especially the bread, some bread we get today, and this bread, we had to break it and tear it. And, and that picture of the, the, the substance of that bread spreading apart and ripping apart is what I've pictured when we take the Lord's Supper. But... Charles Spurgeon gives us a greater glimpse behind these two elements as to why they really portray what happened on the cross. And so, uh, by the way, his church is in England, and I went there, and, uh, and he, he's from the 1800s, you know, and uh, he's the prince of preachers, and it's a it's got this beautiful facade, a marble building, it's still there, still church there, and it's truly one of the most remarkable experiences of my life to worship there. Now, after you went past the marble facade, it was a 1960s kind of church building because it's burned down like three times since uh, he preached there. And so you had this facade, and then you went into like this 60s retro kind of weird building. And uh, But so gathered in there for a guy who's grown up in Oklahoma and Texas, it was the most diverse group of people worshiping Jesus Christ that I've ever gathered under. There were literally people from every corner of the globe. And you can almost pinpoint it out being a geography kind of nut that I am by the clothes they were wearing, right? And their, and their ethnicities. And we were all gathered there worshiping Jesus from all around the globe because London is one of the most diverse, if not the most diverse city in the world. And so what a beautiful picture it was, and it's why Chris and Tori Burge are going to reach out and to, and to minister in London and reach the world, and why we support them. And they've shared from this stage about their ministry that they're going to do. It's, it was so beautiful. And to see the same complexity that you see on the underground in the church worshiping that night was one of the best experiences of my life. But Charles Spurgeon, back to this message. 
Charles Spurgeon shares with us why the wheat, why the bread, why the grape, and why the, why the wine, or for us Baptists, grape juice. And he says this, Bread from the beginning of life until consumption appears to be a mass of suffering. As a seed is thrown into a ground, right, and has to die, and then it bursts through, and the, and the seedling comes out, and it bursts up, and he, and he says, it rises and endures freezing cold and scorching heat. Now, I didn't know uh, that Spurgeon ever came to Texas during wheat season, but I guess he did, because that's what happens here, right? Uh, we have this wheat field that survives our epic, we didn't think, the, I didn't know if the wheat would grow this year, after our week of epic uh, um, of, remember that? Remember the snowstorm? So uh, the wheat was in the ground at that time. And so it survived that. And then it usually survives scorching heat that we have right now, but it actually survived our recent floods and constant rain. And, and it was actually harvested, which I wondered at that point too. So it survives through all these complexities that as it grows and it ripens, and then it's cut down and it's gathered and in biblical times and early times, how is it processed? And it's thrown on the floor. And how, how do you separate, uh, get the wheat seed, the seedlings out? It says that it's beaten. It's thrown on the floor and the grain is threshed by, by a severe beating. Then the grain is taken. And what's the next step? It's ground and pulverized between two stones until it comes out into this powder called flour. And then we take it, not we, but you, some ladies and others, and you take it to make bread. And in that process, you knead it, right? Which is really more torture. It's more pounding. It's more slapping. It's more throwing on the table. It's more work. And it's pounded and molded, shaped, and it's pressed. And then it's put into a fiery oven. And then when it's laid out on the table... Like it was this week. It's broken and torn, ripped apart and consumed. And then it's consumed. And, it's, and even when we grind it between our teeth, it dies and it's consumed. That process, look at all that process that that wheat from the beginning to the end is destroyed over and over and over again. And yet, he says, This is my body. The fruit is much the same. The vines are cut and they're thrown into a press, crushed below people's feet even, right? Until the, where the juice flows freely. All this is a picture of Christ's body and blood being beaten and squeezed and pressed and ground and pulverized to the point that these two elements, they project grace from the past, Aren't bread and wine the perfect emblems of intense suffering that Jesus would endure on the cross for us, for our sin? And then he sets it in front of us, and he says, Take, eat, this is my body, which is for you. It's a projection of grace. It is the good news. And then when we see also is when... And the next section is that this, the Lord's Supper provides grace in the present uh, because he, he, he gives directions for taking it and how we should take it and how we should prepare to take it. And so uh, in verse 27, it says this, Whoever, therefore, 
eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now, be, to be clear, and it says unworthy manner, Paul did not say that we had to be worthy to partake of the Lord's Supper. There's no one worthy. No, not one. And we all fall short of the glory of God. And so we are not worthy. It's amazing so many times when you talk to people and, and they're going through struggle. They're like, well, man, I've done a lot of bad things. and I'm going I'm to get myself right and I'm going to get myself back to church. <laughs> no, no, no. That's the wrong formula. You'll never get yourself right enough to get back in here. Get back in here. And let God work and examine and build and grow and change you from the inside out once you're here. But this idea that we have to be better to be in here, that we have to be worthy to be in here, I hope we project that that's not the case. I know I do. Okay? Or I try. He said that we should partake in a worthy manner, not that, we're that we should be worthy to take it. And so how do, you, how do you partake in a worthy manner? We do it by, he tells us, we do it by examination. And let me just tell you something. When we signed up for this life as Christians, we signed up for an examined life. We signed up for us to examine our life. We signed up for our brothers and sisters in Christ to examine our life. We signed up for the Holy Spirit to examine our life and to convict us. We signed up for that. The Christian life is examined life. We cannot, should we, we should never say, well, that's just the way I am. Or, how about this one? That's just the way I was raised. You should examine your life against the scriptures, against the life of Jesus Christ, and be in a process of transformation to be more like him. Not allowing anything or any process in your life as an excuse not to be examined your whole heart before him. No excuses. Examine life is important to us as, as we walk this Christian life. Tim Keller writes about the Lord's Supper and this examination process. He says, obviously, the Lord's Supper is not for perfect people but for repentant people. But that is just the point. The Lord's Supper forces us to keep our inner experience linked with our outer behavior. It demands that we ask, am I truly living a life of gratitude and obeying God as I would be if I really believed he saved me at an infinite cost for his only son? Am I loving others sacrificially as I would be if I really believed I was saved by sacrificial love? To take the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner means we examine our hearts, we judge ourselves accordingly, and we confess our sins to the Lord before taking it. Things we should be doing daily, which is probably part of the remembrance process. What are some things we examine ourselves 
you don't have to look far. You can look in chapters 10 and 11 of 1 Corinthians and find these questions. Do you have any idols in your life? I already shared one of mine, right? I can wake up at 4.30 a.m. to go take a picture of a sunrise or in London. It's a good thing, but it can become too big of a thing in my life. But that's just me. What's your idol? And do you examine it? Do I examine it as much as I should? But in remembrance, we live an examined life. Are you doing anything to cause division in the church? Chapters 10 and 11, are you, 1 Corinthians, unity is a call. Are you being unifying member of this church? Are you bringing disunity to this church? I have to ask the same question myself. I absolutely have to do that, and I should, and I have. And I've found myself not in the place I want to be in that category myself. Are you trusting in Christ alone for your salvation, or are you trying to earn your way to God? That's an examination question. Is there anyone you need to forgive or ask forgiveness from? Those are things just found in these two chapters, 10 and 11 of Corinthians, that we examine our life. Through examination, we are provided with grace in the present. And then finally this morning, the Lord's Supper prepares us for the grace of the future. In verse 26, he closes this section with this little or this little section here says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now this doesn't say, do this as often as you gather. And there's nothing wrong with that. Okay? There's nothing wrong with that. But we choose to do it on a, a rotation, a, typically a quarterly process. But there are some churches that do it every week. Now it doesn't require us to do that. But it just says, when you do it, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The return of Jesus is the ultimate hope of every Christian. It's our only hope. It's the glorious anticipation that just as Jesus may have died, he didn't stay dead. And just and when we die, we don't stay dead either. One day Jesus is coming back to fix everything that's broken. There's a lot broken. One day he will wipe every tear from every eye. And for some of us, that's more than others. One day every sad thing will come untrue. One day justice will roll down like waters. One day righteousness will flow like mighty streams. One day your pain will cease to exist and will be replaced with joy. I love the summer sessions when we were talking about Lazarus this morning. John was making the point that we don't hear from Lazarus after he's raised from the dead. Poor Lazarus. He was in heaven, and he was brought back to life, brought back to here. But, and we don't hear anything from him. And John said, maybe it's because he's bad. <laughs> like, I was up there, and now I'm back here. Wait. But the story tells us that Jesus is, controls death. 
What a great story. I want to read another great story as closing. Remember Roland Taylor, Protestant preacher in 1555 who found himself jailed by Bloody Mary? When he didn't recant, he wrote these things. I'm going to try my best to read them to you today. I say to my wife and to my children, the Lord gave you unto me, and the Lord hath taken me from you, and you from me. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I believe that they are blessed which die in the Lord. God careth for sparrows and for the hairs on our heads. I have ever found him more faithful and favorable than is any father or husband. Trust you, therefore, in him. He stayed as his wife and kids. When he's about to die for his faith, he says, Trust you, therefore, in him. By means of our dear Savior Christ's merits, believe, love, fear, and obey to him. Pray to him, for he has promised to help. He didn't take him from the, from the fiery stake, and he's saying he promised to help. Must be more than just rescue in our current situations. That's more important that he sees. And he says this, Count me not dead, for I shall certainly live and never die. I go before you only, and you shall follow after to our long home. To our long home. The Lord's Supper and what we do here prepares us for the grace of the future. The grace that was dispensed to Roland Taylor came through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone through his faith. Not in a church, not in an organization, not in a government, church and state together thing, and not through an act of uh, ritual, but only through the blood of Jesus Christ dispensed to him. And it was enough. What we do here matters. What you do here matters. Jesus matters in the ultimate and the biggest questions of life. This matters. It's important. So would you bow your heads with me today? The question is, where do you place your faith? Do you place your faith in an organization, a a go-between that your parents raised you in and taught you to do certain rituals and taught you to do certain functions? And that because you do those, you have earned grace because you've partaken of a piece of bread or wafer, drinking from a cup, that the the grace has been dispensed to you? Or do you believe that Jesus Christ went to the cross for you, gave up his body and his life, a perfect sacrifice for you. And that is where you've placed your faith and your faith alone 
is in the blood and the body crucified of Jesus Christ, raised again three days later. That's where your hope is. Maybe today you have never placed your faith and your hope in Jesus Christ. What you would do here today matters immensely, if that's you. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.